KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. San Diego County is rolling out monkeypox vaccines. There's always a fine line to walk in terms of stigmatization whenever the government gets involved in this kind of situation. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new harm reduction drug program launches. What to do in case of an overdose, how to recognize an overdose. So we'll have a lot of information, a lot of education. Hopefully it'll give us a way to maintain that dialogue with uh, folks that are sometimes honestly very difficult to reach. A conversation with the head of Immigrant Affairs, and we'll tell you about the new docuseries, Icons Unearthed. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. A limited number of monkeypox vaccines will be distributed by the county starting today and tomorrow in advance of the San Diego Pride Festival this weekend. This comes as health organizations around the world have reported the gay, bisexual, and transgender communities are at the highest risk for the virus. Joining me now with more is San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So first things first, how will the county be rolling out this vaccine program? I mean, how many will be available and where can people get them? What I've heard is they have about 600 doses and they're being very, very judicious about how they allocate those doses. They have a, a, a system set up through their 211 information line. So folks who qualify, who are in those groups that you just mentioned, qualify to apply for the vaccine. And so they can call into 211 and ask uh, if they can get a, make an appointment. Uh, and so those, those clinics, I guess, are going to be going both uh, today and tomorrow. Do we know if the county will expand availability of doses later on down the line? There's been an international lack of uh, supply for these vaccines. And so I think the county would definitely allocate any vaccine that they've got available. Uh, you know, one thing that they do when they find someone who has been exposed to monkeypox is they, they vaccinate them uh, proactively. And so they do need to have some supply available to vaccinate people who they know have been exposed. But if they have additional uh, doses beyond that, certainly I would expect that they would just give them to anybody who's at risk. There has been a lot of demand in the, in cities that are seeing their outbreaks grow. Uh, that's that's definitely been the case uh, in San Francisco and Los Angeles here in California. And, and this vaccine rollout is similar to ones that were done before events in LA and San Francisco. How is the county working with the community to make this vaccine available? What they told me yesterday uh, when I chatted with them was that they had reached out uh, to many of the LGBTQ serving organizations in San Diego. Uh, these are you know, highly respected organizations who are very close to the communities that they serve. And I, I saw that, ex for example, that the Pride Foundation put out its own flyer for this vaccination event uh, on its own 
Twitter feed uh, yesterday soliciting people to call in and and uh, make appointments for these vaccination events. Uh, so I'd say the primary outreach has been the, the county health department working through these uh, organizations that directly serve these populations rather than going out on their own and trying to do it themselves. It seems like they've they've learned a fair amount, especially through the COVID and, and uh, hepatitis A outbreaks that we've seen in the community, that the best way to reach people is to work through what they call trusted messengers, people who, who are already known in the communities they want to reach. And it, it seems like they're, they're adopting that philosophy here. You've spoken with the director of San Diego Pride about what's being done to raise awareness. What did they have to say? We talked and he was, uh, you know, concerned about uh, stigmatization, obviously. You know, it's difficult, though, when the, when the government decides to uh, vaccinate a specific population that is considered epidemiologically to be at high risk of an infectious disease. It really uh, becomes a, a fraught situation where, where you're, you have to reach out to these folks and that the media ends up covering it and, you know, messages go out on social media. So there's always a fine line to walk in terms of stigmatization whenever the government gets involved in this kind of uh, situation. Uh, and you know, I think we all are trying to figure out exactly how to uh, cover this and pay, pay attention to it and, and let, give people awareness and, and the information that they need to know without stigmatizing, uh, you know, because we all are aware of uh, you know, the public health travails that, that have occurred uh, in this community going way back. So there is a fair amount of sensitivity that's needed. And what's the latest info we have regarding actual cases of monkeypox in the county? As far as we know, there are only uh, six that have been detected so far. Uh, And when I talked to uh, public health officials yesterday, they said that they have no indication of what they call local transmission, which would be uh, one person contracting monkeypox from another person here in the community. As far as we know, uh, all six of these are travel cases that likely picked it up somewhere else. And as far as we know, they're not what they call epidemiologically linked, which would mean that there was some kind of uh, obvious contact or association. Do health officials anticipate a jump in that number after this weekend? They said that they did. You know, they they obviously have been working very hard to increase awareness in the community. Uh, What we learned was that they've been uh, working with some of these organizations for three weeks now, uh, getting the the message out about how monkeypox spreads. It's uh, through direct contact generally with the pox themselves. So it's it's not generally the case that you're going to, it's not at all the case that you're just going to walk by somebody and get monkeypox. Uh, there has to be some quite intimate contact. Uh, and so uh, if you if you avoid quite intimate contact, then, then you're not likely to pick it up. And so that's kind of the message that's been going out there uh, pretty conscientiously from what I can tell for for three weeks now. So they, they certainly have been doing uh, what appears to be a fair amount of outreach and education. Paul Sisson covers health for the San Diego Union Tribune. You can find a link to his latest article on their website and at kpbs.org. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Keeping the first full-scale San Diego Pride Parade and Festival in more than two years, a safe celebration also includes access to a new harm reduction program. With the celebrations, there is concern about illegal drug use that could lead to overdoses and a growing number of deaths. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has the story. I like to keep everything in order so it's easier to just give them what they need. Heather Newhart has 30 years of experience in social work and drug treatment strategies. She often works on the streets supporting homeless addicts through the Harm Reduction Coalition of San Diego. 
That means filling paper bags to go with toiletry items as well as clean needles to inject illegal drugs and also boxes of Narcan, the nasal spray that revives someone who is overdosed on opioids and stops breathing. If you want to come down here, I'll gladly give you some fentanyl strips. These days, Newhart and her team also take calls from people who want to test their street drugs for the potent synthetic opioid fentanyl before using them. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine or heroin. It's just so easy to overdose on a very, very small amount. Ed Orhelis is shadowing Newhart and the coalition street team, learning how to support addicts who are still using. He is the program leader of Step In, a new harm reduction outreach to the county's LGBTQ community. According to the National Library of Medicine, gays and other sexual minorities are more than twice as likely to abuse drugs than their straight peers, or Helis is one of them. I can tell you my story, but, uh, you know, I was actually not breathing for part of it, so... Before getting clean and sober from heroin, he tried smoking fentanyl for the first and only time. I saw the smoke come out of my mouth, and that was it. That's all I remember. The next memory I have is I was kind of all scrunched up on my friend's couch, and I was like, what happened? And he said, I had to hit you with Narcan. He said, I had to hit you with Narcan twice. Narcan helped start his heart and saved his life. It also started his road to recovery from drugs and alcohol. Now, Urhelis is working to get Narcan into the hands of other LGBTQ users before they die. The step-in program will provide other life-saving resources, too. The call for help begins with a simple text message to the step-in hotline. What to do in case of an overdose, how to recognize an overdose. So. We'll have a lot of information, a lot of education. Hopefully it'll give us a way to maintain that dialogue with uh, folks that are sometimes honestly very difficult to reach. One, we admitted we are powerless over alcohol. Recovering addicts and alcoholics have found a safe haven at the Live and Let Live Alano Club in the heart of Hillcrest. The majority of members are LGBTQ, although anyone is welcome to attend the almost 50 meetings a week that include 12-step recovery and harm reduction programs. Robert Tice is one of the club's board members who is also a drug counselor in a South Bay hospital emergency room. Harm reduction meetings mean that we believe we can't judge that abstinence-based program is the only way for you to get sober. Tice says the crisis is that almost every street drug is now laced with fentanyl, which you can't see, smell, or taste until it's too late. The Alano Club is partnered with the county health department and provides free Narcan at the coffee bar for anyone who wants it. No questions asked. When do you give up on an addict? Never. Not me. Pam Highfill is the outpatient director of Stepping Stone, the nationally recognized LGBTQ recovery program with a residential facility in City Heights. She is supervising the new Step In program, reaching out to those who need help the most. As long as there's breath, there's hope. To be able to meet people where they're at and give them a glimmer that we're not going to judge them respect where they're at and where they want to be, it gives them that first idea that they have worth. A glimmer of self-worth that could be just a text message away. Joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. And M.G., welcome. Good to be here. 
Now, this is not generally the kind of education you cover. What makes the information provided by the Step-In Outreach Program unique? As the education reporter, I have tried to think outside the box as much as possible. And in this case, this is education that I believe is potentially life-saving because it deals with a social problem uh, that continues to get worse, certainly um, did get worse during the COVID uh, lockdown, and uh, and is impacting a community that is vital uh, to our own city and to our community at large. Now, one of the drug counselors you spoke with told you that almost all the street drugs are now laced with fentanyl. And my question is why? Why do drug suppliers add this potentially fatal ingredient to their product? Maureen, the answer is criminal in every sense of the word. So the reason is an opioid is highly addictive. So the suppliers have decided that it is better to put a little bit of fentanyl into a a drug because there's a chance that that user will get addicted to it. Uh, There is also a chance that there will be instant death. So in that sense, it doesn't make sense. But then again, we have to realize we're, we're talking about a segment of our community that is dealing in, in an illegal act. And uh, this product, so to speak, in quotes, is not regulated in any way. So these suppliers are free to do whatever they want to try to make more money. And that's the hard answer to that question. What's the difference between a harm reduction program and a 12-step drug recovery program? 12-step recovery started uh, almost 80 years ago, and it is a program designed for full abstinence. In other words, you stop drinking completely, you stop doing any chemical uh, mind-altering substance. Uh, Harm reduction takes a different um, venue in trying to help the addict, and that is by Uh, allowing the addict, so to speak, to continue using, whether it be alcohol or drugs or a combination, but at the same time uh, offering options that might wean them off the drug or make it safer to use. And I know that that does not sound healthy, but in the reality of drug addiction, it is harm reduction and could save lives. Now, making sure addicts have access to Narcan, which, of course, can help a drug user survive an overdose, is one of the main objectives of this program that you're talking about. But how safe is Narcan itself? Can it leave behind any health side effects? There is a slight chance that a person could have uh, an allergic reaction to it. And the reality is either save your life and maybe have an allergic reaction or instant death. And that's really what it comes down to. But overall, it is considered a safe uh, product that is being used, obviously, in trying to help people stay alive through their addiction. What other life-saving resources does the Step-In program provide? The Step-In program is partnering with other well-established organizations in San Diego County that are helping Uh, to promote harm reduction. And through those resources, they are offering fentanyl strips. This is a strip, if somebody has a a drug that they're going to ingest, they can actually test to see if there is fentanyl. Uh, There are also uh, clean needle exchange programs uh, that would be part of this. Uh, Again, this 
uh, step-in program is just getting started. But they are doing it the right way in the sense that uh, the organizers are, are trying to learn from others who have already been involved in this kind of um, harm reduction. MJ, are members of the LGBTQ community especially vulnerable to addiction? They are. And the reason is simply stigma. Uh, addiction uh, it itself has a stigma, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction. And then, uh, as we know well, uh, the LGBTQ plus community has uh, suffered through a lot uh, in recent years and certainly in the past. So it's really stigma against stigma. And when you are coming from that place, uh, an escape, if you will, uh, and maybe a low self-esteem, um, is what really drags uh, the community down into addiction in order to cope with life. Now, as upbeat as this week's Pride celebrations are, there's also concern that there may be an increased use of opioids during this time. Tell us about that. The danger is that during the partying, during the celebration, uh, you know, people might think, oh, we're just going to, you know, recreationally celebrate and use these drugs. But again, they have no awareness if uh, fentanyl is present. And as we have said, it is uh, deadly and just a little bit can kill you. Now, you mentioned several times that the step-in program counselors are as close as a text message away. Can you tell us how to get in touch? So really, it is uh, as simple as texting the word MENU, M-E-N-U, to the number 619-279-5480. That's 619-279-5480. And the moment they do that, they will be met with uh, a welcome message and then a list of resources. Uh, and uh, included in that is a, a, the opportunity to connect with a person who might be able to help them in the way of counseling or if they decided they would like to get into some kind of recovery program. I have been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you. Thank you, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The city of San Diego's immigrant community now has its own city agency. The Office of Immigrant Affairs was officially opened last week. Mayor Todd Gloria says the office will help welcome immigrants to San Diego and make sure that their voice is heard by City Hall. The new Immigrant Affairs Office will build upon previous city efforts to address the concerns of the immigrant population. The office has an executive director, but a small staff has yet to be hired, and the specifics of how the Immigrant Affairs Office will operate have yet to be hammered out. Joining me is the Executive Director of San Diego's new Office of Immigrant Affairs, Rita Fernandez. And Rita, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that you've already had some experience serving the needs of immigrants in San Diego as the city's first immigrant affairs manager appointed in 2019. So can you tell us how this new office is different from what the city was trying to do back then? Well, this office is very welcome news for our immigrant community in San Diego. And it's actually a great step forward for the city because it's building on the Welcoming San Diego initiative. 
Um, as you mentioned, the city has uh, had this initiative before. Back in 2019, uh, Mayor Kevin Faulkner had launched the Welcoming San Diego Strategic Plan, which contained a series of very comprehensive recommendations for the city to become a, a more welcoming city and advance policies that would help our immigrant community through the integration process. And one of the recommendations was eventually building out an Office of Immigrant Affairs in the city structure that would have resources and staff to be able to continue implementing a lot of these recommendations and to really continue building out our welcoming city mission. Tell us a little about the range of countries and cultures that members of the San Diego immigrant community come from. We have a very diverse immigrant community in San Diego. About a quarter of our overall population is foreign born. And these folks come from all corners of the world. They represent over 115 countries and territories around the globe and speak over 75 different languages and dialects. So you're really looking at a very diverse community and a community that um, has various needs challenging for the Office of Immigrant Affairs then? (laughs) Well, certainly challenging, but a wonderful opportunity. For me, this job is uh, just a wonderful opportunity to be able to do it. I'm very humbled to have been picked by Mayor Todd Gloria to lead it, Uh, but it's very near and dear to my heart. Both my parents are Mexican immigrants. They are the descendants of a long line of immigrants. Uh, My great-grandmother was actually the daughter of Chinese immigrants in Mexico. And so it's such an important job. We have our, our work cut out for us, but it's an absolutely crucial mission for the city of San Diego. How do you think the fact that the immigrant experience is a part of your family history is going to shape your role as the head of this new office? I think it gives me a very interesting and unique perspective. I've seen through my parents' experience the numerous challenges and obstacles that they have faced through the integration process. They came here in the 80s. I saw them go through the naturalization process. I saw everything that they sort of had to manage in terms of, you know, getting me enrolled in school. And then once I was getting ready to apply to college, um, a lot of that I had to sort of navigate on my own. Uh, My father at one point owned a small business. And so I think that personal experience has really informed my own passion as as a public servant to really focus on this particular issue. Because for me, assisting immigrants through the integration process is a basic public service that all cities, localities, states should provide, uh, certainly the federal government. But it is essential, especially for a country like ours, which is really a country of immigrants. What are the kinds of things that the city can do to make San Diego an easier place for immigrants? So one of the things that our office is going to take on at the onset is really ensuring that our city can better serve and communicate with our immigrant communities. We know that our immigrant communities speak over 75 different languages and dialects. So for us, one of our sort of flagship initiatives is going to be expanding our language access services to better be able to communicate with them. And there's a lot that the city can also do by way of bringing resources and information to immigrant communities, such as Know Your Rights workshops, resource fairs on TPS, DACA, as well as assisting people uh, with the naturalization process. 
We know that there are a number of people that are eligible to become citizens, but may not necessarily know how to go about it, given that it's, it's such a, a complex and very complicated process. So we want to ensure that we're educating folks to that on that process, that we're providing them uh, the most effective information for them and their families so that they can navigate that process. And so there's, I think, a lot that the city can do in terms of making sure that the needs of our immigrant communities are being met and that we're bringing them much needed resources. You mentioned DACA, and there is a court battle going on right now in a federal appeals court on the future of DACA, which of course protects immigrants who arrived as children from deportation. What kind of impact would that have on San Diego if that protection is struck down? Oh, it would have a great impact. Uh, We certainly have DACA recipients here in our region, uh, several thousand. They are people that know no other country other than the United States. They work here they go to school. And we even have uh, city employees that are DACA recipients. And so it is really a lifeline. We have been advocating for the protection of DACA and really ensuring that we get more permanent, long-lasting protections for DACA recipients, given that they are such a vital part of our community. And as you well know, the issue of undocumented immigrants is a hot-button issue even here in San Diego, how does the Office of Immigration Affairs stand on addressing the status of immigrants in the city? Our job is to work with all our immigrant communities, regardless of their status, regardless of where they come from, their background. Uh, For us, it's important that we are addressing the needs of everybody. And one of the things that I had mentioned earlier in terms of some of the resources that we can provide are Know Your Rights presentations. And that is something that A lot of other cities have provided for their undocumented populations to educate them on their rights. So we will continue to serve every immigrant throughout the city of San Diego, regardless of who they are. Well, I've been speaking with the executive director of San Diego's Office of Immigrant Affairs, Rita Fernandez. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Maureen. Starting on Saturday, Californians who are in mental distress and thinking about suicide will be able to call or text a new three-digit number to get help. But if they call, will someone pick up the line? The California Report's Saul Gonzalez has the story. The easy-to-remember new number, 988, will replace the 10-digit 1-800 phone number long used by the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 988 is being rolled out nationally because of bipartisan legislation passed by Congress in 2020. But each state, including California, will have a lot of control over how the new number is managed and funded. 988 is a huge step forward for America and specifically for Californians to ensure that people get the care they need in that moment of crisis. That's California Democratic Assembly member Rebecca Bauer-Cahan of Orinda. She's one of the most vocal supporters of the 988 line in the state legislature and thinks it could be a game changer as more Californians grapple with mental health problems. We think with this easy-to-dial three-digit number, we expect an incredible increase in callers, which is a great thing. It means more people will be getting help during a crisis, especially in a moment when they might be suicidal. 
But there are worries that an expected doubling or even tripling of calls to the new 988 number could overwhelm California's 13 suicide prevention call centers. Jonathan Cantor, a researcher with the Santa Monica-based think tank, the RAND Corporation, has studied the establishment of the 988 line. He says the current National Suicide Prevention Line, or NSPL, already has a significant number of problems dealing with call volumes. So I think right now, I believe it's about one in seven calls with the NSPL are disconnected before reaching a responder. And just historically, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline has been understaffed and underfunded. So the fear here would be that something similar would occur if you called 988. Assemblyman Bauer Cahan believes California's suicide prevention call centers are prepared for an increase in calls when 988 goes live, partly because of the money the state is committed to improving its crisis response system. We've uh, dedicated $28 million to build up our call centers. We, as I mentioned, we expect an influx of additional callers, so we made sure we uh, expended funds to get our call centers ready to handle that, those additional calls, get people trained and prepared to answer. So hopefully that will all happen without a hit. Fingers crossed, right? Yeah, more than fingers crossed because lives are on the line. Beyond setting up the 988 line, mental health experts say what's needed next are more mobile teams that can meet face-to-face with people who are experiencing a mental health crisis and resources for long-term care and counseling. Assemblymember Bauer Cahan has introduced legislation that would place a surcharge on phone bills to fund such programs. That was Saul Gonzalez for the California Report. Last Thursday, the San Diego Padres inducted sportscaster Ted Leitner to the team's Hall of Fame. The legendary broadcaster served as the voice for the San Diego Padres for more than 40 years before stepping away in 2021. Joining the honor with former team president Larry Lucchino, Leitner is now part of a select list of franchise icons, many of whom he covered in his days behind the microphone. To talk more about his recent honor and his career is Ted Leitner, Ted, welcome. Okay, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So what did last week's induction to the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame mean to you? I'll tell you what, I started out my so-called address or speech or what have you with the statement that this is the biggest honor of my professional life. It met and exceeded everything that I thought it would. And that doesn't happen often, but it happened that day. And to have my family together. An example, I've never had my seven children and my four grandchildren together at the same time. So it's just absolutely incredible. But to have them there and and to have that honor bestowed on me by the Padres, they did not have to do that. They did. And it was a grand, grand, one of the greatest days of my life. Oh, my gosh. And you've watched a lot of great players take the field in the Padres uniform. Who are the ones you remember the most? There's a lot, but it's still a good question because Tony Gwynn has to come to mind, especially with me. I mean, I covered Tony when I, uh, and still do, the play-by-play for San Diego State football and basketball. While I was doing that in the late 70s when Tony played basketball and baseball at the same time, and uh, I got to know him then when he was literally just a young kid, a teenager playing basketball. And and it was just a great relationship. And it became a tremendous relationship. I mean, he was my brother. And, and, and I, was, I was on a, a, a television show on Fox after Tony had died. And I was on and several other broadcasters and his, his wife, Alicia, was on. And I was asked the first question 
Well, I started to answer it. Alicia interrupted and said, you don't, by the way, I don't mean to interrupt Ted, but you do know that Tony loved you. So to, to not have him number one would be kind of odd and off because we were together his entire 20 year major league baseball career after those several years of, of San Diego state basketball and then basketball and baseball. And so he's right up there at the top. I adored Ken Caminetti. I thought, what a great, you know, people say about man's man. This was a man's man, flawed without any question in terms of uh, 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 steroids and drugs and the drugs that killed him. But that doesn't change that I loved him. And I mentioned him during that address because though he wasn't there and Tony's gone, they were in fact there with me. And those two players are way, way up there. You've often talked about how your broadcasting partner of many years, Jerry Coleman, was a major mentor to you. How did he impact your career? On so many different levels and in so many ways. I did not have a great relationship with my father. He did not have a great relationship with his wife or his other two children, my brothers, older brothers. So the truth of the matter is I was always seeking a father figure. You know what I mean? And then I had one. And it turned out to be a guy that I watched on television back east growing up play for the new york yankees and all of a sudden i'm his broadcast partner <laughs> and so it's a pinch me every single day and not just a man not just a former uh, all-star baseball player but uh, just a man of such character and integrity and that kind of a man to learn from and get guidance from both on a baseball standpoint and a private standpoint I don't know what I ever did to deserve something so wonderful, but Jerry Coleman was that to me and more. You retired from the booth for Padres games before the start of the 2021 season and described that season's opening day as a difficult one. Now that more time has passed, I'm wondering how you feel about stepping away when you did. It hurts. I miss it desperately. If I'm flipping around and I see baseball highlights, I watch them. And I think, oh, man, that was a great catch. I wish I was there to describe that. And I'll watch Padre games and think the same thing. I would have loved to have called that no-hitter by Joe Musgrove. I would have loved to call this great catch by Manny Machado. And it, it's, it was entertainment for me. It was exciting for me. It was my, also my job. And what a job. I mean, you find something you love. In the Chinese proverb, you find something you love, you never work a day in your life. I never worked a day in my life. I loved every single bit of it. Television, sports. The uh, play-by-play of football, basketball, baseball, NBA, uh, college football and basketball, Major League Baseball. I couldn't get enough of it, plus talk shows. So my the variety I had, it was Christmas morning every single day. I never didn't want to go to work. So, of course, I don't care what you do for 41 years. You're going to miss it. And the people especially that you are with, that you work with, that you travel with, that you work for. And I got to be honest, to answer your question, uh, it, it, it hurts. It hurts. The travel was getting to me as my age was going up and other you know, physical things and, and so forth. And I thought, that's okay. I want to do football, basketball. The travel's not anywhere near as tough as being gone for a week or week and a half with baseball. But it really is painful. And I don't know that that will ever go away. Finally, you've seen a lot of great Padres teams, including the two World Series teams from 1984 to 1998. How does this 2022 team compare to those? This is a good team. This is a good team. I, I mentioned it somebody before the ceremony the other day at Petco for the, the induction of Larry and myself. And I said, if Jerry Coleman, who was the manager in 1980, saw these pictures versus what he had, 
<laughs> I can just hear him ranting right now. You believe that? How great these pitchers are? How great their stuff is? I didn't have any of this. I had nothing like that. I think for a team that matches up against them in the playoffs, Padres will be very, very dangerous. And this is, again, given, given health and, and no unforeseen things happening like they did last year. Uh, this is a tremendous pitching staff, and I think they need another bat. I, I think they never shy away from investing their money to bring the Padre fans a winner. So I think they'll pick up a bat, and they'll get a bat when the great Fernando Tatis comes back shortly from his injury. So the fact that they're where they are, as good as they are, without Fernando, without Pierce Johnson, without uh, Pomerantz, they're going to have, I think, a really big second half. And this is one of the better teams, one of the better Padre teams. And like I said, I never, never broadcast a Padre team that has this type of starting pitching. Fantastic. Lots to look forward to there. I've been speaking with a new member of the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame, legendary sportscaster, Ted Leitner. Ted, congratulations to you. Thank you so much for this interview. Jay, anytime. I enjoyed it very, very much and wish you the best of luck. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Last night, Vice TV debuted the docu-series Icons Unearthed, Star Wars, which takes a deep dive into George Lucas's franchise. The show is produced and directed by Brian Volk-Weiss, whose love of pop culture is clear in his previous shows, The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Volk-Weiss about making a valentine to the film that changed his life. So, Brian, you have produced the movies that made us and the toys that made us. So you've taken deep dives into pop culture before. So what made you decide to look at the Star Wars movies? If anybody who knows me were to think about your question, I think the answer would be, why did you wait so long to do Star Wars? Star Wars is the reason that I'm in show business. I would be a, probably a dentist or a lawyer in Queens if it wasn't for Star Wars. I think subconsciously I knew not to start with Star Wars because, you know, we had a lot to learn. You know, we learned a lot on Toys That Made Us, which helped us with movies that made us. And we needed all of this experience and knowledge to be ready to do Star Wars. Now, as someone who was a teenager when Star Wars came out and was interested in going into filmmaking, one of the people I looked up to was Marsha Lucas because I wanted to be a film editor. She is a great get that you have on this show. How hard was that to track her down and get her to come on the show to talk about this? Um, It was extremely hard. We went through all the proper channels. Nobody responded to us. And then... An interview we did asked us who we were trying to get. The first thing I said was Marsha. And he was like, well, who are you talking to? And I mentioned the people we were calling and emailing. He goes, no, no, no. You got to go through her assistant. So he gave us her name and number that we didn't have. We didn't even know who the assistant was or anything. So after a couple of weeks of going back and forth, she said yes. So 
I literally flew to Hawaii same day, interviewed her the next day, six hours in her house, mind blowing interview. And that's how it happened. And it's her first on camera interview ever. Lucas was ready to audition his still unfinished opus in front of trusted friends who just happened to be the luminaries of American cinema. We had a screening room in the back of our house and we watched it in the house to see how things were playing out and how they were working. I remember Brian De Palma coming out and saying in his loud bulky voice, George, you've got to get rid of that force thing. That doesn't work at all. What is that? Out of all the things you discussed, was there anything that stood out to you that you were surprised by or that you were just fascinated to find out? There's a lot of stuff she told us about Star Wars, the movie that was mind-blowing. And there was a lot of stuff about George Lucas as a human being that was mind-blowing. So to give you two of my favorite examples, one, they were so behind schedule and pretty over budget, Fox was putting a lot of pressure on George to not film the ending attack on the Death Star. So Fox actually wanted the movie to end with them leaving the Death Star, having rescued Princess Leia. Here they come. And no final battle. So I didn't know that. I had never heard that before. And, you know, we were able to confirm it with, uh, you know, luckily we got two of the three editors. So that was mind blowing. Because can you imagine Star Wars ending with them rescuing Princess Leia and shooting down four TIE fighters? That's probably not the kind of ending that gets people to watch the movie a hundred times. That's it! We did it! We did it! Help! I think I'm melting. This is all your fault. And then I've read every book and seen every documentary, probably 99% of that have been made about Star Wars and George Lucas. It never was clear how important George Lucas's father's mantra of own your own company, own your own company. Oh, you know, his father owned a stationery store or a couple stationery stores in Modesto, California. And he just drilled into George from an early age. And they had a complicated relationship the way a lot of fathers and sons do. And for all the complicatedness, I mean, George took that to heart, own your own company. And if there's anything I've tried to do with this particular series is I feel like there's a lot of things in life that are insane when they happen, but then when they work, everybody forgets how insane they were. And the fact that George Lucas barely survives physically making A New Hope, and then instead of just taking Fox's money and making Empire Strikes Back like everybody else has over the last hundred years, he took out a bank loan mortgaged his house, mortgaged everything he owned so that he could own Empire Strikes Back. And that was a complete disaster. It's the most difficult shoot of anything ever, Star Wars. He survives again, and then he does the exact same thing with Return of the Jedi. But that time it was 30 million, and he didn't even really have to take out a loan. He just used his own cash. Well, as much as I like the interviews with some of the you know on-screen actors, those effects guys were just amazing. And to get some of their stories about the behind the scenes process and the creative process. And I think what was really amazing, too, is 
the solutions that they came up with for getting stuff on the screen. I mean, that stuff is just wonderful. There, there is a shot in A New Hope. All wings report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 7 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 2 standing by. Red 11 standing by. Red 5 standing by. That I had seen conservatively 300 times. And it's such a basic... And this is, again, I feel like this story I'm about to tell is like the microcosm of our series. It's a reasonably simple shot that you wouldn't question in that the X-Wings are coming towards the Death Star. This is it, boys. And making their attack on the trench. Starting for the target shaft now. We're in position. And again, it's a kind of reasonably simple shot. You have the X-Wings banking left and going into the trench. We interviewed Dykstra. We interviewed uh, we interviewed this guy named Gus Lopez, who actually owns the models and the matte paintings. It is the most mind-blowing special effect in the entire movie because they're basically cutting from a matte painting to a model seamlessly. I mean, literally, even knowing where the cut is, and they hide it with a laser blast, you can't even tell what they're doing. And this is a scene I have seen at least 300 times and never noticed that. And that's the kind of stuff we're trying to do with our show. We have to destroy them ship to ship, get the crews to their fighters. Well, thank you very much for talking about Icons Unearthed. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind uh, to talk to you. And uh, thanks for, for just caring about what we're doing. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Brian Volkweiss. Icons Unearthed Star Wars is currently streaming on Vice TV. You can hear the full interview later this month on Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.